We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. A reading from Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream. When one awakes, when you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds." This is the word of the Lord. You may take your seats. Please join me in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that you don't keep us guessing about who you are or what you think about us, uh, but Lord, you speak to us clearly through your word, and, and that you give us not only words on paper, but that you give us your spirit, a spirit that gives us an understanding that is out of our reach, uh, a spirit that softens hearts that are hardened, a spirit that cuts through our pain and even our doubt. And uh, Lord, we, we need your spirit this morning, uh, because all of us, Lord, all of us are a mess. 
None of us are able to find you through our efforts. We need you to find us. And we pray that you would do that now through your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are continuing through this summer sermon series that we're calling Authentic Faith, which is a series through the Psalms. Uh, One of the beautiful things about the Psalms is how real it is about life. There is no experience, no emotion that is unexplored by the Psalms. Uh, We've been looking at how in the Psalms we encounter a real God who wants a real relationship with the real you. He doesn't want the edited you. He doesn't want the resume version of you. You are not applying for a job. God wants you in his family, which is to say that he wants the real you, the unedited you. Uh, He wants your worry. He wants your sorrow. He wants your loneliness. That's what we looked at last week. He wants your anger. That's what we're going to be looking at next week. And he wants your envy which is what we're going to be looking at today. A few years ago, my wife and I went to a concert. We got these tickets last minute. The concert was sold out, and because it was so close to the concert, the seller panicked and sold them for really cheap, so we bought these tickets below value. Uh, The thing is that the seats were at the highest possible point in the last row, the furthest possible that you could be from the stage. You could literally reach back and touch the wall of the venue. Um, But we were still stoked because we were going to a concert that we weren't expecting to. And uh, after we found our seats, I started looking on social media to see if any of my friends were at the concert. And I, I saw a lot of my friends were there. And then I started to notice a lot of them had better seats than I did. Some of them were like right in front of the artist. And I, I, you know, I, I, it's not okay. That's not great, but I have some really successful friends, right? They've, they've, these are like doctors and lawyers. Um, they're working in the corporate world. And then I noticed there were a bunch of pastors there, too. <laughs> they had better seats than I did, too. All of a sudden, this rush of envy flooded me. And all of a sudden, I had this uninvited anger and sorrow and bitterness, and I couldn't enjoy the concert. Everybody around me was dancing, my wife was yelling her head off, and I was just seething with, 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 with bitterness. Never underestimate the power of envy to ruin a good thing. And if you've ever experienced envy, you know how this works. Francis Bacon says that envy keeps no holidays. And what he means that is that envy never takes a break. Envy sh- always shows up unannounced, uninvited, unexpected. And when envy enters into your heart, you can't send it away. And it comes in all shapes of sizes. Envy comes as kitchen envy, right? children envy, marriage envy, food envy, body image envy, ability envy, Vacation envy, house envy, creativity envy, education envy, respect envy. We envy just about anything that we could ever imagine. We could go on and on. So what do you do with your envy when it appears unannounced and uninvited into your heart? Do you hide it? 
Do you let it eat away at you? Do you use it to drive you beyond your limits? Well, in today's passage, we, we find a man named Asaph. We know that this was written by Asaph because of the, the heading at the top of the psalm. And Asaph was the worship leader of Israel. He was a very important person, but he was filled with envy. His success and the important work he was doing was not enough to defend him from envy. And what did Asaph do with his envy? He took it to God. That's what we're going to learn how to do today. We're going to learn how to take our envy to God. We're going to do that by looking at three things. Number one, we're going to look at the danger of envy. Number two, we're going to look at the clarity of worship. And number three, we're going to look at the power of grace. So let's start with the danger of envy. Again, the heading of Psalm 73 tells us that it was written by Asaph. And he uses this interesting metaphor to describe his struggle with envy. He says that envy is like a slippery slope. Imagine trying to climb up an icy hill. Every step you take you, you, causes you not to go upward, but to slide downward. He says envy is a slippery slope. He says, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. That's how envy works. As soon as envy entered his heart, he realized that he couldn't stop himself. He kept slipping lower and lower and lower. The envy, instead of decreasing, increased. And it all started when he saw how the wicked prospered. We don't know who the wicked people are that Asaph is talking about in this passage. We do know that they were violent, verse 6. They clothed themselves with violence. We do know that they were hateful, uh, arrogant, and unjust, verse 8. They speak with malice, with arrogance, and threaten oppression. Beyond that, we don't know anything about these wicked people. And actually, it doesn't matter who they are. What really matters is that Asaph does not believe that these people deserve the good things that they're experiencing in their lives. See, envy begins with the belief that other people have what you deserve. Envy says, you don't deserve all that money. You don't deserve all that success. You don't deserve those incredible parents who support you no matter what happens in your life. You don't deserve all those friends. You don't deserve all the respect that people show you. I deserve what you have. And, and what's, what's really tricky about this is that envy blinds us from seeing other people clearly. It distorts our vision of other people's lives. Look at verses 4 through 5. Asaph says, the wicked have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. He's saying they have everything. They never have to suffer. Everything is easy for them. They never have to go through the things that I have to go through. They have nothing to complain about. And of course, that is not true for anyone. Everyone has problems. All of us is broken. And it doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how much success you have. It doesn't matter how many friends you have. It doesn't even matter how much love you have because none of these things can protect us from pain or suffering or sorrow or loneliness. 
But Asaph could not see any of that because he could not see the humanity of his enemies. All he could see was their success, their wealth, their beauty, their comfort, their ease. All he could see was that they had good things that he deserved. He couldn't see their fears. He couldn't see their disappointments. He couldn't see their broken relationships. He couldn't see their addictions. He couldn't see their insecurities. He couldn't see their weaknesses. All he could see was that they had what he deserved. See, envy dehumanizes the people that we envy. That's the only way that it could work. When you are jealous of someone, you don't see their inherent worth. All you see is that they have what you want. And when you are near them, that pain, the pain of unfulfilled desire can become unbearable. But Asaph is not finished slipping. He slips even deeper in his envy because envy not only distorts the way that you see other people, it also distorts the way that you see yourself. Listen to what he says in verses 13 through 14. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. Asaph is questioning his entire life. He's questioning his faith. And he's saying, nothing good ever happens to me. I have wasted my life. All the effort I put into obeying God and doing the right thing, it was a waste. It was for nothing. There's nothing good in my life. He's basically saying, God hates me, right? I, uh, he, he felt stricken all the time, he says. He felt rebuked at the start of every single day. Every time he heard from God, all he heard was bad news. See, envy blinded Asaph, not only from the humanity of the people that he hated and envied, it blinded him from his own humanity. He could not see the good things that God had done in his own life because he was too fixated on the good things that he didn't have, the unfulfilled wants, the unfulfilled desires. And he's not done slipping he slips even further because the worst part of the slippery slope of envy is that it damages your relationship with God. Asaph begins, begins to regret his faith. He regrets devoting his life to God. And he does this because he questions the goodness of God. Envy actually cannot exist unless you are criticizing God. Envy exists because we believe that God got it wrong. Envy exists because we doubt God's wisdom, God's providence, God's kindness, God's goodness, God's love, God's mercy to us. Have you ever slipped down the slippery slope of envy? Are you slipping down that slope this morning? When you see other people's success, does it make you sad? When you see other people fail, does it make you a little bit happy? Does envy create distance between you and God? Well, the good news is that there is a way out of the slippery slope, and it's not through ourselves. It's not through our situation or our circumstances. It's not through other people. It's through God. God can stop the slippery slope of envy. This brings us to our second point, the clarity of worship. 
Psalm 73 takes a dramatic turn in verse 17. Asaph is on the brink of giving up, and he says in verse 16, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. He was troubled. He was exhausted. Envy is exhausting. Uh, But in verse 17, Asaph enters the sanctuary to worship God, and something happens there that changes everything. What happened in the sanctuary? Well, the first thing that happened was that Asaph began to see that the things that he envied were not real. The things that he envied were not real. Look at verses 18 through 20. He says, how suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. Asaph saw that the things that he envied don't last. They're fleeting. They, they don't deliver real joy. Uh, think, about, think about the way that we envy money. If you treat money like it could actually add real value to your life, then you're in for a rude awakening because it will not last forever. And when your wealth is gone, you will feel worthless. If you treat success like it can validate you, you're going to be in for a rude awakening because one day you're going to wake up and you are going to feel ruined. If you treat beauty like it can make you loved and significant and important and noteworthy, then you're in for a rude awakening because one day you're going to wake up and you are going to feel unloved and unwanted. If you treat comfort like it can make you happy or safe, one day you're going to wake up and feel defenseless against the sorrows of life. See, our hearts envy a picture of joy that is not real. There's this amazing website called Fake a Vacation, and it does exactly what it it claims to do. For a nominal fee, you could upload some pictures of yourself in some exotic location, having the time of your life, you could fake a vacation. And this is actually what the website says. The banner of the website says, fake a vacation with pictures. Make your friends envious of where you are and have them thinking of being where you are. It's ridiculous, right? It's funny because no one would envy a fake vacation. But that's exactly what happens every time we envy anything. We're envying a picture of fake joy that will not last and cannot satisfy us, a joy that can lead us at en- leave us at any moment. We're envying a mirage, a fantasy, a distorted idea of someone who is untouched by the sorrows of life, which just doesn't happen. Worship gave Asaph clarity about the things that he was envying, but it also gave him clarity about the people that he was envying. He, he says, I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You, you hear what he's saying? Suddenly Asaph sees beyond just the good things in the lives of people who have what he wants. He begins to see their brokenness. He begins to see them as human beings. He begins to see that they are actually in real danger. Asaph's envy is replaced with empathy. He begins to see that he should not envy his enemies, but he should sympathize with his enemies. He should feel sorry for his enemies. He should feel compassion for his enemies. See, worship gave Asaph clarity. He saw that the people he envied 
actually had deeper needs than they knew or that he knew. And he confesses, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast for you. He's saying, I had no idea what I was talking about. I had no idea when I saw these people and I was captivated with envy. Nietzsche says that envy and jealousy are the private parts of the human soul. It's hard to look at your envy with clarity. It makes you feel vulnerable. It makes you feel exposed. It makes you feel weak. And it's impossible to do unless you're in the presence of someone that you love, someone that you trust. And that's the beauty of confession. Confession takes the real you and brings it in all its brokenness and messiness to a God who loves you, the real you, not the pretend you. Envy isolates us, and it makes us feel hated. Confession makes us feel loved. Envy says, I'm a mess, and everyone hates me. Confession says, I'm a mess, but somebody loves me. And this is what happens for Asaph. He gains clarity, not only about the things that he envies, not only about the people that he envies, but he has gains clarity about himself and about God. And so in verse 23, he says, yet I am always with you. He's talking to God. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Asaph is saying, I am a mess, but I know that God still loves me. I know that God has not abandoned me. God has taken me by the hand, and he's leading me to glory. This brings us to the last thing we're going to look at today, the glory of grace. The grace of God is more than just loving. It is loving. And the extent to which God loves us is amazing. But it is also glorious, and that is so important to know. Listen to what Asaph says in verse 25. He says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. Those are not the words of someone who has experienced small grace. Those are the words of someone who has experienced glorious grace. See, small grace produces small joy. Small grace cannot change your life. Small grace may make you feel good for a moment, but it won't give you hope when everything falls apart. Small grace can be easy to talk about and easy to believe in, but it won't captivate your heart or make you want to give your life to someone. It won't drive you to surrender your life to God. And we need more than small grace. We need glorious grace, glorious grace. A grace that is not glorious is powerless. We need glorious grace that can change us. How do you find glorious grace? Well, you find it in two things. You find it in great need and great hope. In verse 26, Asaph describes his great need. He says, my flesh and my heart may fail. My flesh and my heart may fail. The Bible is saying that we need God's great grace because our strength and our flesh is going to fail. It's not a question of if, but when. We will fail. All our best efforts, all our good intentions will fail. None of us will ever be good enough, and yet it's okay. Why? Because God comes to us with glorious grace. We have great need, and the greater we see our need, the greater God's grace will be to us. Have you come to church today with small needs, 
Or have you come with great needs? If you want to experience a glorious grace that changes your life, you need to be willing to look at the greatness of your need. Paradox of the gospel is that the greater your need is, the greater God's grace will be to you. But if you stop with your need, then you will have a distorted picture of God's grace because you need more than just a great understanding of your need to understand God's grace. You need great hope. You need glorious hope. And that's why Asaph goes on to say, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That word portion is not a word we really use anymore. It it means inheritance. And even that is not a word that we use a ton of uh, these days. Uh, But it's hugely significant in the ancient world, and it's still very important today, especially if you have a big inheritance coming. But the picture here is that God's grace is not a free ticket to Disneyland. God's grace is part ownership of Disneyland, right? It's an inheritance. It's a glorious inheritance. It's a great inheritance. God not only forgives you and gives you a clean slate, God actually accepts you into his family. He makes you a co-heir together with Jesus. He makes you a prince or princess of his kingdom. He adopts you, and he not only gives you the hope of a successful life, he actually gives you something far better. He gives you the hope of a glorious identity. Did you know that John F. Kennedy wrote a five-sentence college essay to Harvard University. It won't take long to read it, so let me read it for you. Kennedy wrote, the reasons I have for wishing to go to Harvard are several. I feel that Harvard can make me a a better background and a better liberal education than any other university. I've always wanted to go there, as I have felt that it is not just another college, but is a university with something definite to offer. Then, too, I would like to go to the same college as my father. To be a Harvard man is an enviable distinction and one that I sincerely hope I shall attain. That's his whole essay. You know, he he had no business going to Harvard, but he did. Not on the merit of his essay, not on the merit of his grades. His grades were pretty bad. He got in because he was a Kennedy. He got in because he had a powerful father. He got in because he had an inheritance. He got in because of his identity, who he was, not what he did. Now, I'm not saying that the grace of God will get you into Harvard. (laughs) It probably won't. But it will actually give you something far better. See, the grace of God will give you an identity and a significance that is more glorious than any success, any possession, any accolade that you could ever receive in this life. And because he makes you part of a family that is more glorious than any family you could ever hope to belong to. And the way that you receive this identity is through Jesus. You see, God's grace does not come to us through the air. It doesn't come to us through a feeling. It comes to us through a person. It comes to us through Jesus. And when Jesus died on the cross, the incredible mystery of the cross is that he actually committed reverse identity theft. I recently got an alert on my credit card that somebody got a hold of my number, and and you know what you do when that happens. You cancel your accounts because you don't want them using up your credit. 
and destroying your credit. Well, on the cross, Jesus committed reverse identity theft. What does that mean? It means that he gave you his credit card (laughs) with its unlimited limit. And he paid the bill. He paid the bill. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He paid the bill for all that we owe. And he's given us his credit, which is to say that when we go to God, we don't go to God as beggars. We don't God as people with something to prove. We go as his beloved children, as heirs with unlimited credit line. And we can go to God and ask big things for him. And we could live our lives knowing that no matter how unvalidated we feel, no matter how hard our situation is, no matter how great everyone else seems to be doing, we have an identity that is bigger than all of it because we have glorious grace given to us through Jesus. And when you believe this, it will change everything. That's what this table represents. Here at this table, you can know that no matter how weak you are, no matter how much you've messed up, that God is the strength of your heart and your portion, your inheritance forever. Here at this table, your envy can be transformed to praise. Here at this table, you can say, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. For God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. On the night that the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat of this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it in remembrance of me. And as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you for Jesus, the firstborn from the dead, and that through him you have opened a way for all of us to also be adopted into your family, and that all he earned, his perfect life, has been credited to us by grace, sheer grace. And we pray that you would help us to see how glorious and magnificent this grace is, to to see the depths of our needs and the heights of your love, and that we would be able to stand secure in knowing that we belong to you, that you have given us a new identity. Make this real for us, Lord, through these elements, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.